Our text this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 32 to 40. Deuteronomy 4, 32 to 40. As you're turning there, let me just tell you that uh, I love the Bible, as I hope you do. It's my prime passion in life to be able to teach the Scripture to our students. And uh, I've, I've not yet, in my preparation of this text, um, thinking about this text, been able to really get through it without just becoming a mess. So um, <laughs> let's hope that that doesn't happen for your sake and for my sake. <laughs> but we're in Deuteronomy chapter 4, beginning in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard, and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war? by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after him, them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. It's a good text. It's a rich text. You may have picked up that this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel in his final set of speeches to them in Deuteronomy before they are to go over and to take possession of the land that God had promised them. Moses himself is unable to go in after having shepherded these people for 40 years. He himself is unable to cross over into the land. And so like a loving and caring shepherd, he's exhorting this people to love God, to obey God, and to trust God. And so he, he begins Deuteronomy by reminding the people of Israel all of the things that the Lord their God had done for them. And this eight verses that I've just read falls within one of those speeches reminding Israel what God had done for them. So we see in this text, briefly, 
that in mercy and love, God, the Lord, Yahweh, it's important that, that we know that it's Yahweh and not any other God. That's what God reminds the people in this text. In mercy and love, Yahweh reveals himself to Israel and delivers Israel so that Israel will know that Yahweh is God alone and will obey him. Now, we, we're not Israel, and we're not standing where they stood on the brink of the Jordan about to cross over into Israel to take possession of a land that God had promised to us. Uh, we're a new covenant people brought together, bought by the blood of Christ, brought together by the Spirit of Christ to worship God the Father in the Spirit. And so we don't have words from the fire exactly to guide us. We have this. It's our book. It's the Christian's book, the church's book. And, and I would argue that the miracle that we have in this book is not less than the miracle that Israel had in seeing the fire and hearing the voice of God from the midst of the fire. And so my goal this morning is that we would understand more and more that when we read the Bible, we are hearing God's merciful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're hearing God's word. We are hearing words from the midst of the fire. Let me ask you this. Do you remember (laughs) the first time that you read your Bible and realized that it was the word of God? That what you were holding in your hand or maybe hearing someone read was not like any other book or any other speech or any other anything, but was in fact the living voice of God. That rather than, say, having a a picture or a painting of fire, you were standing before the fire itself. Do you remember that? Or has that ever happened? And if it hasn't happened, I pray that that would happen this morning, that you and I would realize, maybe for the first time, maybe more and more, that when we stand before the Bible as those who sit under its teaching, that we sit under the voice of the living God, hearing words from the midst of the fire. That's my aim. My aim, to say it another way, is that when we read the Bible or hear it preached, that we would be like those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, saying, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? That's my aim, that our hearts would burn because we hear words from the midst of the fire. And so... To that, I want to look at four features of the Bible that are found in this text. Four features of the Bible. Now, this text is talking about God's word from Sinai, specifically the Ten Commandments. That's the context here. Uh, Just as Paul in Romans 10 says this word that, that Moses said was the Ten Commandments, this word is the word of faith that we proclaim. So we see 
as new covenant people that God's voice comes to us in the scripture. And so four features of the Bible, and since you don't have notes, I'll, I'll tell them to you if you're a note taker. First, the Bible is God's address to us. The Bible is God's address to us. Second, God's motivation in addressing us is mercy and love. God's motivation in addressing us is mercy and love. Third, the content of God's address to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the content of God's address to us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And fourth, by faithfully hearing this gospel, we may gain a saving, sanctifying, satisfying knowledge of God. By faithfully hearing this gospel, we may gain a saving, sanctifying, satisfying knowledge of God. Let's look at those four features in some detail. The Bible is God's address to us. The Bible is an address. It's a message. It's a message, you understand. I think sometimes we have a difficult time understanding the Bible for this reason. When you open a book, usually what you'll find in the book that you've just opened is a list of chapters. And say you were reading a novel, or even, say, a biography or a work of, of history, those chapters will take you through a certain story or set of events along a certain timeline, right? And we, we all kind of know how stories work. There's, you know, your, your setup and then your rising action and your climax and your falling action and your resolution. And that's what we expect when we read certain books, When we open the Bible, we find not a list of chapters, but a list of books in the Bible. And some of them are, are very different from others of them, <laughs> in such a way that perhaps we, we have a hard time fitting the whole together, right? So you open your Bible, let's say that you're opening it for the first time, and, and it actually reads a little bit like a story, and it's pretty chronological. God creates the world, okay, good, I see where this is going, Right? God puts the first people in this paradise, in this world that he made. They mess up. God judges them and makes promises to them. And then we start to follow their family tree. And it gets broader and broader. And we're looking at the whole earth. And then somehow it starts to get narrower and narrower. And we begin to just look at one family after too long. The family of Abraham. We get to the end of Genesis, and we've been tracking along with the family of Abraham. Then we get to Exodus, and the story has advanced a little bit, about 400 years, and God's people are in Egypt, and they've been enslaved. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, they've been enslaved. And God sends a deliverer named Moses to rescue them. And, and so then there's this story that's full of action and divine intervention about God's rescue of the people. And then they come to God's sacred mountain where God will make his covenant with them. And then what follows is a list of rules for furniture. 
Have you read that part, or did you, did you kind of gloss over it? It's like 13 chapters, and actually, it's a list of rules for furniture, and then what follows is a description of them building the furniture exactly according to the rules, and it sounds like it's just a repetition. God says, make it like this. Hey, there's a candlestick. I want you to make it like this, and then say, good, we made the candlestick like that. And then you get to Leviticus, and far from sort of clearing this up, now we just have about 27 chapters of um, just rules about sacrifices and washings and feasts. And then we get to Numbers, and the stories pick up again in Numbers. And then Deuteronomy, and, and, and it seems like Moses is just saying, all right, now everything that we've talked about in the last four books, let's repeat. And you go, where is, this, where is this going? And then before too long, we pick up the history again, but then we take a break for a bunch of songs and poetry and a depressing story about a guy who lost everything. And God comes to him in a tornado, a whirlwind speaks to him. And, and God, you know, in justifying Job's pain, God describes these two fantastically huge beasts. Doesn't the Bible seem confusing to you from, from time to time? And it doesn't seem as though we're talking about one theme, right? Because where did the furniture go by the time we get to Job? Or where did the people of Israel go by the time we get to Job? Sometimes it doesn't seem as though it's one theme, but the Bible is an address, and addresses or messages have one theme or say one point. God is getting at something in the Bible. He's making a point. And, and let's not be confused. When we read the Bible, we're not reading, say, Bartlett's book of quotations. As though you can read the Bible and say, well, that's a nice little chunk. I'm going to take that out and put it on my wall. I'm not criticizing these beautiful banners. But it's not as though we can say, well, you know, that's, that's a nice little chunk for today. I'll take that and I'll leave the rest. Bartlett's book of quotations. So you can flip through it. I'm just looking for something inspirational today. That's not how God's address works. It's not like Bartlett's book of quotations. It's not like, say, Grimm's fairy tales or Aesop's fables, where we just have a set of unrelated stories that are all kind of neat and interesting, and they all have some sort of moral point. Be a good boy or a wolf will eat you, right? (laughs) The Bible is an address, and it has a point. We'll talk about what that point is. But, but this address is utterly unique. So it's not only just addre- an address, a message, a speech, but it's an utterly unique address. And, and it's unique for three reasons. And we find them in the text. First in verse 32, For now ask of the days that are past whether such a great thing has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire? God's address is unique because God has never before spoken like this, as he has in this book. Realize that when we're holding the Bible, we're holding something that is not common. Maybe people would have us believe that there are all sorts of religious texts and they all stand on the same footing. But it's not true. Never before has God spoken like this as he has in this book. We can't even say 
Well, yeah, the book, but I mean, the book is just like a record of the things that happened. If only we could go back and look at the real events, wouldn't that be so much better? Peter says in 2 Peter, after describing, he says, we didn't make up cleverly devised myths when we came to you. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. And he's talking about the, 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 the Mount of Transfiguration. We were eyewitnesses of his glory. But then he says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter doesn't say, okay, you guys have the book, but you should have been there. You had to be there. As though anybody who wasn't there is now a second-class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. Peter says, I saw his glory. And then he says, and we've got the prophetic word more fully confirmed. When you hold the Bible, you're holding God's address, and he has never spoken like this before. It's unique. It's also unique if you turn back to chapter 4, verse 13. Verse 13, Moses says, well, I'll start in verse 12. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone. The Bible is a unique address because God has never before disclosed such detail about himself about his character, about his plan for salvation. We say there's salvation found in no other name but the name of Jesus, right? Paul said that in Acts chapter 4. We believe that. But it's not as though there are a variety of sources that you can go to to learn about God, to learn about Jesus, and to learn about this plan of salvation. There is only one. Only one. You remember when... Jill Pohl had just pushed Eustace off the cliff in the silver chair. Read the Chronicles of Narnia. They're full of good anecdotes and illustrations. Jill Pohl had just pushed Eustace off the cliff, and then she goes wandering for a stream because she's thirsty. And she sees a stream, and she sees this huge lion in front of the stream. And she's terrified, and then the lion speaks and says, if you're thirsty, come and drink. And she says, I dare not drink. She's afraid that the lion will gobble her up. And so she says, do you eat little girls? And he says, I have swallowed girls and boys, men and women, kings and kingdoms. She says, oh, then I daren't come and drink. Do you mind moving aside? And he just growls at her. And she says that she realized that she may as well have asked a mountain to move. And so finally, in exasperation, she says, well, I suppose I will go find another stream. And the lion says, there is no other stream. There is no other stream. If you're thirsty, come and drink. You say, well, I, words from the fire, this sounds dangerous. It, it's certainly unquantifiable. Maybe I'll go for some other word. Well, there are no words. There is no other stream. God has never before disclosed his own mind like he has in the scripture. Carl Henry, a teacher in the last century, said that in the scripture God forfeits his own personal privacy so that his creatures might know him. 
I love the way that he puts it. In the scripture, God forfeits his own personal privacy so that his creatures may know him. I mean, Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, you have the words of Christ. You have a window so that you may see in so that you may see the name of God and the character of God and the plan of God. And this is totally unique. You don't see it anywhere else. And it's unique for a third reason. If you were to look at verse 36, out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he may discipline you. It's unique because only in Scripture does God speak in such a way as to discipline his people and make them holy. I hope that you're a church who longs for holiness, who longs to see the Lord and to be holy. Where will you go to be holy? Only in the scripture does God discipline his people in this way. So this is totally unique. What you hold in your hands is totally unique. It's an address. It's a unique address. And as a unique address, it has a context, a content, and a consequence. Its content, sorry, its context is love and mercy. That's point two. Its content is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's point three. And its intended consequence is that God's people would be saved, satisfied, and sanctified in the knowledge of God. That's point four. But understand, know this, you need to know this, know that when you read your Bible, you're reading God's unique, perfectly crafted address to you. Have you considered that? That when you open the Bible and read its pages, you're reading an address from God to you, crafted perfectly for God's church. And that means you, if you've trusted in Christ. So know that. This is God's address to us. Isn't that terrifying, by the way? (laughs) I mean, we're talking about the living God. We're not talking about a statue or an idol made of stone or wood. The living God. The God who made the heavens. reading Psalm 33, 6 this morning. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their starry host by the breath of his mouth. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and now he's speaking to you. Are you afraid? Al Mohler has said that there are two miracles in Deuteronomy 4, 33. The first is that people heard the voice of God, and the second miracle is that they lived. Not just that you heard the voice of God, but that we would live. It's terrifying to fall into the hands of the living God, and it's terrifying to hear the voice of the living God. So what's the motivation of this God who speaks? Who speaks from the midst of the fire? God's motivation in addressing us is mercy and love. 
Yes, God speaks. Yes, God is terrifying. He's not a tame lion. His motivation in addressing us is mercy and love. God's speaking and acting is an evidence of his mercy. If you look at verse 31 in chapter 4, it's right before what I read. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. His speaking and acting is an evidence of his mercy. He speaks because he's merciful. Do you realize God does not owe us salvation? Or any of the blessings that we receive in Christ. And this side of hell, one of the severest ways that God could enact his judgments, if he were not to save but to judge, this side of hell, one of the severest ways that he could enact his judgment would be to remain silent. He didn't have to speak. He doesn't owe us anything. He just kept silence. But God loves his people, his fallen and sinful people, and desires to be in relationship with them, and so he speaks. His motivation is mercy and love. We know he's merciful because he speaks. The reason that God has let us hear his words is so that we might fear him. And, and flip back to look at verse 10, Deuteronomy 4.10. Moses is saying, don't forget, verse 10, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words. That I may let them hear my words. Hearing is an act of grace. It's a, we tend to think like this, that, that the Bible is some sort of artifact that we interact with, right? Like your smartphone. Sorry, I'm a millennial, so I use smartphone language. When you want to interact with your smartphone, what do you do? You pick it up and you start to interact with it, right? And it sort of just lays there inert unless you start interacting with it. We tend to think that God's word is sort of like the same thing. As long as it's closed, it can't frighten me. It can't comfort me, it can't command me, it can do nothing to me. When I open it, I unleash its ability to do these things. And this, I mean, it's, your Bible's not a mystical, magical book. But when we read the Bible, God is letting us hear His voice. It's not as though we've summoned Him I've opened the book, now I've summoned the voice of God. When we open the book, God has summoned us. Let the people come near to me that they may hear my voice. God's motivation is mercy and love. He's letting us hear him. If you, if you think about Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 11 to 14, and you may want to write that reference down. Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 14, it's a passage that's quoted in the New Testament. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses says, don't say to yourselves concerning this word, who will go to heaven to bring it down for us? Or who will go across the sea to bring it to us? No, this word is not far from you. 
The word is near you in your heart and in your mouth that you may do it. The word is near you. In mercy, the holy God has drawn near so that we may hear his voice. Because of his love, because of his mercy, God saves by his presence. Look at verse 37. Because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his own great power. Because of his love, God saves by his presence and his word is a witness to his presence. Did you know that? God's word is a witness to his presence. So that when the word is opened, God is present. God draws near to us in his word to reveal himself to us. I think about 1 Samuel. You you remember Samuel. He's He's a little boy. He's dedicated to the temple. He hears the voice of God. Eli um, is, is sort of going downhill, and in chapter 4, goes all the way. <clears throat> in chapter 3, Samuel grew up, and in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21, the text says, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the Lord appeared at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, Shiloh, By the word of the Lord. How did the Lord reveal himself to Samuel? By the word of the Lord. How does the Lord reveal himself to us? By the word of the Lord. By the word of the Lord. That's his mercy. That he would speak and so reveal himself to us. He didn't have to do that. God didn't give us the Bible to let us know how incredibly inept or sinful we are full stop. Now, hopefully, if you don't realize how sinful and inept you are, you'll realize that when you read the Bible. Right? But God didn't give us the Bible just to say, here here you go, sinners. Read them and weep. The law brings the knowledge of sin, but it does so so that the gospel message will have its full effect. The Bible was given to show us the way of salvation. That's what it means when we say God's motive. Why did God speak? God spoke. That's point one. The Bible is God's address to us. Why did God speak? Mercy and grace, because he loved your fathers. He brought them out of Egypt with his own presence. God's motive is mercy and love. This changes the way that you read, doesn't it? When you understand that God's motive was mercy and love, know that when you read your Bible, God is speaking to you as Savior and not as judge. For those who trust in Jesus, when you pick up the Word, do you ever pick up the Word and you just feel so ashamed because of your sin? And you feel like the Word does nothing but bring you more shame. Maybe I'm the only one who's that sinful. I remember picking up the Bible and reading 1 John 3, and of course being ashamed at my sin, and reading in 1 John 3, uh, I'm trying to quote it, Um, the one who knows God does not keep on sinning because God's seed remains in him, he cannot keep on sinning. The one born of God cannot keep on sinning. And, and 
feeling shame at my own sin and reading that. The one born of God cannot keep on sinning. And what did I do? I just closed the book and walked away. Do you ever think that when you read the Bible, just God's just, it's like verbal abuse from, from the Almighty? That God can only speak with a voice of criticism and never with a voice of comfort? That's not the right way to read your Bible. Of course God uses his word to bring conviction of sin. But God's motive is mercy and love. Know that when you read your Bible, God is speaking to you as Savior and not as judge. And how does he speak then? Or what does he speak of? We've said the Bible is God's address. God is speaking when you read your Bible. We said that the reason that he's doing this is, so, is because he loves us. That's his motive. Now, what is he saying? What's the content of God's address? The content of God's address to us is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, okay, I know what it is. It's the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments, written by 40 different authors over 1,600 different years. That's what it is in its form. What is it in its content? The content of the scripture is the gospel of Christ. When we say an address has one theme, it's redeeming love. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We mustn't think. So we, we call the whole Bible revelation, right? It's God's special revelation to us. That means that God is revealing something. We mustn't think that when God is pulling back the veil in revelation, that he's pulling back the veil on something other than himself and his work. That's the, that's the Bartlett's book of quotations error again, right? The Bible reveals many things to us, and so really you could read the Bible and find information about angels. You could read the Bible and find information about science. You can read the Bible and find out information about birds and plants and animals and precious stones and uh, young earth and you know, morals and ethics and all sorts of wonderful things. It's true that the Bible touches on a great many things but only insofar as they relate to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the content of the Bible. When God pulls back the veil, when he reveals to us, what he reveals is the knowledge of himself. Look at chapter 4, verse 35. To you it was shown that you may know that the Lord is God and there is no other beside him. Or look at verse 39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath There is no other. What God reveals to us is himself. What God reveals to us is his name. There's a lot that we could say about that. John Webster said that God's name is his sheer enacted identity. The one who is and acts thus. And that's, he's a theologian who has no intention of making himself known to, you know, people like me. So he's hard to understand and hard to read. But but listen to this. God's name, who is God? He, He is. He's the living one. He's the Lord. He's Yahweh. God's name is his sheer enacted identity. The one who is and acts thus. See, for you and me, names, I mean, whatever. You know, my parents named me Daniel because... uh, when they first moved to the house that they were living in when I was born, there was a little neighbor boy whose name was Daniel, and my dad liked him. It's not, like, it's not much of a legacy. My name could easily have been anything else, right? I'm glad that it wasn't. 
but it could have been something like Eustace Clarence Scrub or Rupert or something. I don't know. But my name doesn't say much about my identity. If you hear my name, you don't go, oh, yeah, I know everything about that guy or anything about that guy, except that his name is Daniel. But God's name, God's name tells us who he is. And God's name tells us what he will do. An angel appears to Mary and says, you'll have a son and call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. God's name is his enacted identity because God is and acts and there's no discrepancy between the two. It's not that he is one way and he acts another way. I might be one way and act another way, right? I might be a nice guy and then be really grumpy one day and act like a jerk. And I say, well, I'm, you know, I act like a jerk to you and then I walk away and somebody who knows me comes up and says, he's really not like that. He's really kind of a nice guy. You just caught him on a bad morning. He hasn't had his coffee yet, so on and so on. But God doesn't do that. God is and acts and there's no difference between the two. So when we say that when God pulls back the veil on his own name, that what he reveals to, him, to us is himself, that includes all of his saving work, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To know God as he is is to know him savingly. To know God as Father is to know him as the one who elects us for salvation and becomes known as Father through his saving work. To know him as the Son is to know him as the one who effects salvation for us and becomes known as Lord through his saving work. To know him as Spirit is to know him as the one who perfects salvation in us and becomes known as Comforter through his saving work. Revelation is reconciliation. God's not revealing something other than what his plan is to redeem us, to reconcile us to him, to give us the saving knowledge of himself. Don't go reading your Bible looking for information about something other than the gospel. Or if you, if you are sort of doing a Bible study on patience or, or, or you know, somebody says, well, why don't you believe in abortion? And so you go looking to the word. Remember that all of these things that you would find in the Bible are ancillary to the knowledge of God in Christ. That they're tied up in the knowledge of God in Christ. We could talk about that forever, and we won't. Or maybe someday we will. That's the content of God's address to us. Know that when you read your Bible, God is revealing himself to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look for that when you read your Bible. Look to see how God is revealing himself to you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ask questions. When you read Proverbs 30, 33, right? I love Proverbs 30, 33. Pressing curds brings forth milk. Pressing the nose brings forth blood. And pressing an argument brings forth strife. The world of Proverbs is so simple, isn't it? When you read Proverbs 33 and you go, Pressing the nose brings forth blood. How does that reveal the gospel of Jesus Christ and the revelation of God's name? And it does. Email me about it. We'll talk about it. But when you read your Bible, look to see how God is revealing himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, by faithfully hearing the gospel. And when I say faithfully hearing the gospel, I mean reading the Bible and hearing it preached. By faithfully reading the gospel, hearing the gospel we may gain a saving, sanctifying, and satisfying knowledge of God. Do you want to be saved? 
Bible has your answer. Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be holy? I want to be holy. Do you want to be holy? The Bible will take you there. Do you want to be satisfied in God? The Bible will take you there. Here's the force of what we've been saying, because we're all sort of leading to this. The Bible is God's address. His motivation for speaking was mercy and love. The content of his address is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what's happening when he speaks? What's the consequence, the intended consequence of his address? God has spoken out of mercy and love. He's revealed himself to us in order to establish saving fellowship with us. It's this revelation of God's nature, of God's name, that brings us from death to life. It is this which overcomes sin and replaces it with loving obedience. It is this that always leads us to fresh joy and satisfaction in God. The deepest needs that we have can only be met as we look at Christ, the image of the invisible God who gave himself for us and for our salvation. You don't get to see that somewhere other than the word. Anything else is a, is, a, is a dim remembrance, a dim pencil sketch of the fire. What we encounter in the word of God is the fire itself. Because this is the case, we must take up and read, take up and read. We must take up and read. Only as we read the Bible and lay it to our hearts, that's verse 39, only as we read the Bible and lay it to our hearts can we be saved, sanctified, and satisfied. These come from none other than God alone, and the full knowledge of God comes from Scripture alone. There is no other stream. And so when you read your Bible, read it so as to apply it to your life. Ask God for wisdom. Ask him to make you holy and then trust his promises and obey his precepts in attempting by the Spirit to live for him. Trust his promises and obey his precepts. God has spoken. He's spoken in the word. What I wanted in preaching this text, the first time I read it, I was going to bed and, and um, <clears throat> Kara and I made a rule that when we went to bed, we wouldn't look at our smartphones, which is hard to follow if you're a millennial. And so I thought, well, I can't, I can't look at my phone. What am I going to look at? And so <laughs> I read my Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 33. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire, as you have heard and still live? It, it arrested me. Because God is still speaking, is he not? And we should remind ourselves about this word of God that we confront in the scripture. Sorry. We should remind ourselves what this word is that confronts us in the scripture. That summons us and addresses us. This is the same word of God that was present at creation when God spoke and it came to pass. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their starry hosts by the breath of his mouth. It's that word of God. It's that word of God that summons things into being. It is the same speech of terrifying mercy that God pronounced when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Judgment and mercy mingled in one speech. It's the same word of God that came to Abraham as a promise. Abraham, leave your father and your household and your country and go to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. Whoever blesses you, I will bless and whoever curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's the same word of God. It's the same word of God that pronounced mercy for Isaac at the moment when Abraham held the knife and the voice of the angel of the Lord came to him saying, Abraham, Abraham. It's the same voice of God that pronounced judgment and mercy in Egypt when God came to set his people free. It's the same word of God that Israel heard at Sinai when they were summoned in the words of Deuteronomy. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven wrapped in darkness, cloud, and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. There was no form only a voice. It's the same word of God. It's the same word of God that came through the prophets, urging Israel to remember their covenant Lord, to repent and to return. It's the same word of God that came out of the mouth of Jesus, summoning Lazarus out of the tomb, creating life by his very word. Lazarus, come forth. It's the same word of God issuing from the midst of the fire, from the midst of the blazing center of the glory of God when Christ hung on a cross and cried out, it is finished. That voice of terrifying mercy. It's the same word of God that made the hearts of the disciples burn On the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened up the scripture to us? It's the same word of God by which God will someday judge the earth. As Isaiah 11.4 says, he strikes the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And it's the same word of God that will issue forth from the throne as we see in Revelation 21. Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God's word is a fire, according to Jeremiah, and comes to us from the midst of the fire. We're not at Sinai, but God himself is a consuming fire. God's word comes from the midst of the fire. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's the speech of God's terrifying mercy because it comes from the midst of the fire, summons us to appear before him, and by his mercy, we are not consumed. Know that what you hold in your hands when you hold the Bible is the living word of God from the midst of the fire.